This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Dallin Millard cannot inherit its father, his father's estate due to the upcoming trial for his murder. However, the money to fund his defense may come from the estate. How... How does this all work? Uh, you might remember Alex Pearson, of course, covered the uh, trial for us uh, through its duration for CHML and just did an outstanding job and is with us now. Hello, Alex. How are you today? Hello there. And so the plot thickens. So what does this, uh, first of all, who pays for Dellen Millard's defense? You know, that was, a, that was a question that we asked a lot during the trial. And, of course, we couldn't discuss it at the time. It's like, who's paying for these lawyers? Because Mark Smith, of course, was getting legal aid. He qualified for that. But a guy like Della Millard, who is a trust fund kid, would not qualify for legal aid. So it was well known that he was paying two fairly pricey Toronto lawyers, um, you know, Mr. Pillay and Nadir Sachak, to come in uh, and, and represent him. And it was not cheap because these guys were working around the clock, living in Hamilton at the time. Um, they worked really long hours. So, so it would have been an expensive defense. So where was he getting that money, given that he, uh, you know, not for this particular case, but he was charged with his father's murder, Wayne Millard. Um, and we knew that his estate was being held in the trust of his mother, at the time. So uh, I'm not really sure uh, we will ever have the answer to that question unless, of course, it comes out in court. So as I understand it, his mother, Madeline Burns, holds the money in trust. It was not given to her because she and Wayne Millard divorced in the 90s. But um, they must have access to something. Otherwise, I don't know where they would have gotten that money. There was always this conversation, Scott, that he was asset rich but cash poor right now i don't know his banking situation it's never been made uh, public to me um but certainly as as you read in the the article as, as we find out um from the toronto star a lot of the assets like the um a large um hangar in waterloo was sold off a lot of those assets that he owned the houses in etobicoke the houses in toronto those things were sold off including a loft that he had bought in Toronto, those things were sold off. But again, that money would all go into an estate and to a trust. Which his mother is in charge of. Right. And then there would have to be a court application. And I'm not an, an expert on estate law, so I'm sure you'll, you'll probably dabble with someone else on that. Mm-hmm. But um, this would be something that he would have to get court approval to get access to. Now, certainly if he is found guilty of his father's murder, he will not get any. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the estate, and as I understand, he would likely be the sole beneficiary because he was an only child. So, what would happen to his father's estate if, if in turn, Delad Millard is convicted of his murder? I, you know, without knowing the terms of what was set out uh, by his father, I would mm. assume then that it would go to someone next in line, uh, maybe go to charity. I don't know. What would it have to pay? What would it have to pay all of Delad Millard's legal fees first? I don't think so. No. I mean, that, that to me would be such a, a terrible uh, precedent to, to set, that, uh, to, to do that. But no, I don't know where the money would go. I would, I would assume it would go on to other family members, the next in line. Um, or maybe he had some charities that he would have left the money to. But again, it will be an ongoing issue, I think, of petitioning the court uh, to try to, to get that money. And, and don't forget, while the court may decide to give Dellen Millard money for legal counsel, how do they ever get that money back if, in fact, he is convicted of his father's uh, death? Hmm. Yeah, I see the point. Uh, It's odd that uh, one had very high-priced attorneys, the other had public attorneys, and the outcome was the same. 
Well, yeah. I mean, look. I mean, there's a lot of, of assumptions when it comes to legal aid in this country that they're they're you know not good lawyers, which is anything but the you know is, mm-hmm. is anything but true. There's some fantastic lawyers that are available on legal aid. In fact, um, I know some fantastic lawyers that I would hire and pay. Uh, you know, who who also do legal aid work. So that is a real misnomer in the system. Um, they they do this work at a reduced cost. And as we saw with uh, Mr. Dungy, who was the lawyer for Mark Smith, I mean he created a very high profile for himself through this case and he was an outstanding he did an outstanding job with what he had to work with but again he did this on legal aid and as i understand he will continue to represent mr smith uh in the next court cases they obviously have a, a good relationship he's familiar with the case but that will continue i don't know what happens with Dellen millard um there was a lot of chatter in the cases, I mean, he makes other court appearances, so we were often disrupted during court because he had to make other appearances on other matters, including the Laura Babcock issue in Toronto and the Wayne Millard uh, issue. So he would have to take time off from um, the the Bosma trial to go in and deal with those things. And a lot of times, he didn't have representation. So it was never really known, you know, is he going to use the same lawyers that he had? Can he afford them anymore? Or did he spend all the money in this first trial hoping at least to get an acquittal on the first major charge? Uh, so, again, we don't know if he's actually going to go down the same route, use the same lawyers, or if, um, you know, the chatter proves right, try to represent himself, which I've seen several times in murder cases, and it's always interesting because you'll get these people that think I can do the job of a lawyer, uh, and then they get up on and try to represent themselves and sound like bumbling fools, but they are appointed somebody, a lawyer, in the courtroom who has to basically sit beside them and make sure that they're going through it. So it still does cost wow. the system money. It's hmm. just, Alex Pearson has been with us, uh, of course, covered the Tim Bosma trial for uh, CHML. Alex, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, sir. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Alex. Uh, let's bring in Joseph Newberger, criminal lawyer, Newberger and Partners, LLP, and is with us now. Hello, Joseph. How are you today? Oh, hang on. Wrong one here. Hello, Joseph. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Who would be paying for Dellen Millard's defense? Well, it depends. Um you know, if he becomes eligible for legal aid, which which I think would be a stretch, because with respect to him, there's been issues that I see in the civil case with uh, transfers of assets. So if he applied for legal aid, legal aid could look at what assets he owned prior to the trial and whether they were fraudulently conveyed to his mother and therefore bar him from having uh, access to legal aid. So let's say he can't access legal aid. Then he could maybe try to bring an application to court, we call it a Robotham application, to see for the attorney general to pay for his legal fees, since legal aid won't cover it. And then if that fails, um, I think, uh, like I heard uh, Alex Pearson say, I mean, he might just try and represent himself, and then the court would have no choice, really, in a case like this, but to appoint a lawyer as amicus. So is basically his money or what assets he had safe because he passed them on to his mother? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not really sure what what his financial circumstances were before, but as I understand, he was uh, in possession of assets that were worth considerable money. So, let's say he exhausted a, a fair amount of uh, money on his first trial. I do understand from reading uh, the statement of claim in the civil case that he had assets that he had transferred to his mother. So th- those assets, presumably could have been used by him to liquidate for his own uh, legal defense. So that 
that transfer then may bar him from getting legal aid. Hmm. Uh, obviously, if uh, he is convicted of the uh, murder of his father, the inheritance is void. What happens to that inheritance at that point? Um, well, it would go to the next person available uh, to receive it, so um, the next of kin who would be in line for it. Um, and I, I don't know if that would have been his mother, but um, that could be the case. Uh, but um, even if he's convicted of that, I, I think there still will be other issues because the, the lawsuit will still be pending, and I think the family could still trace funds to those assets even if there's going to be questions about the viability of the inheritance. So um, there's still a lot to be answered that way. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, victims, Bosma family also... Uh, suing, what are the chances of them receiving any funds? I think it's quite good. I mean, uh, they've launched their lawsuit now uh, in advance of the trial regarding the death of his father. The transfer of the assets, which uh, I've read about, if, if the information I'm reading is accurate, clearly are what we call unlawful conveyances. You know, within a four- or five-year period of time, you can't be transferring assets to avoid a judgment. So those could be rolled back into Millard's possession, and therefore the Bosna family, if they're successful in their civil claim, which I have no doubt they would be, they could then attach to those assets to see some money. So anything that was rolled over to his mother could then be taken back? Absolutely. Uh, and, and you feel a good chance of that? Yeah. I mean, you know, clearly those assets were transferred uh, in a period much shorter than five years. I think they were clearly transferred in contemplation of the criminal trial and ultimately what would be civil litigation against him. So uh, that's a pretty standard type of action. And already now I'm sure on those assets, I'm absolutely 100% sure that the lawyer representing the Bosma family has put what's called certificates of pending litigation on them. So they've leaned them to make sure that she can't dispose of the assets and uh, trickle away the funds. So would his defense fund obviously, or would his defense obviously take precedence and, and that would be skimmed off first before any of it went to the Bosmas? That, that's an excellent question. So let's say, you know, he were to try and access those resources. They would have to get approval of a court, uh, considering that there's liens on those assets, that um, relief from that lien, uh, the, the defense on the case regarding his father, would take precedent to the Bosma right of damages against those assets. So um, I, I think there would be a strong argument that, that, that his defense may not take precedent to it. Hmm, that's interesting. Wow. Uh, will this all work itself out in the wash? Is this just legal wrangling at this point? No, I, I think these are real issues. I mean, it's important uh, in our democracy that people have the ability to defend themselves appropriately for serious cases. However, it's not something that should always be foisted on the taxpayer when there are assets to pay. I think in the end, this will get sorted out. But it may very well be that he represents himself and then an amicus is appointed, which means the taxpayers wind up paying for that as well. Wow. Are you surprised by any of this at this point, watching this whole thing? No. I mean, it's not often we have defendants in murder cases with significant assets. So, you know, this is unfolding unlike many other cases that we see in Canada. But this is not unusual, and, and I've seen many cases where financial circumstances are really a significant issue to defending yourself, because litigation is expensive, unfortunately. Uh, obviously, one of the uh, Dellen Millard uh, high-priced lawyers, Smitch, uh, on the public, uh, getting public defense, 
um, amazing how one is spent so much money, one is a public uh, defender, and yet the outcome the same. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I take a bit of legal aid. I have actually a homicide case I'm doing on legal aid now, and then my I have my normal private client. So sometimes whether you're paying a lawyer on a particular case four, five hundred, six hundred dollars an hour, or legal aid is covering it, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be more successful in a certain case simply because evidence is evidence and lawyers sometimes don't have magic wands to make mm. that evidence go away. And in, and this was a very, very strong defense case against both of the accused, although Smitch, in my opinion, stood in a better situation when he went to the jury, certainly, than Mr. Millard. Hmm. So in the end, you think that justice will prevail, that any money that Dellen Millard had, and we really don't know how much that is at this point or or what the extent of this estate is, right. uh, you think that that will eventually go to the Bosma family or and or the defense fund? I, I, think, I think he may get access to those funds for his defense, but then I also believe that a, a healthy portion of, uh, of those assets will be used to satisfy any judgment that the Bosma family rightfully obtains. Joseph Newberger has been with us, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners, LLP. Joseph, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A year ago today, Justin Trudeau chosen as Canada's Prime Minister. A year under his belt. Uh, lots have said the honeymoon is just going to continue right into the second year. To talk more about all of this, Peter Graff is with us, political uh, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Great, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Peter, before we get on to Trudeau, I've got to ask you, of course, the debate is tonight, uh, the final U.S. presidential debate. I think the first thing that struck me was, why would they possibly have a political debate in Las Vegas? Aren't the optics just kind of wacky considering this whole campaign? I mean, why would you pick Las Vegas as opposed to some nice university somewhere? Yeah, that's a good question. But I guess a lot of people like to go to Vegas, you know? (laughs) But wait a second, Peter. This isn't about fun. This is about listening to our political leaders here. Have we lost focus? Uh, well, I mean, I guess the sinners and gamblers uh, vote for the president as much as the virtuous, you know, so uh, you can see, uh, you know, the point that you put it there. But you're right. I mean, it, it seems a kind of odd and gaudy place, uh, but it kind of fits a very odd and gaudy presidential election. Uh, it, it, I, I, you know, it reminds me of like the season finale of a Survivor or something like that, you know, where they do the live show and, and it's in Las Vegas or something like that. When would this have been chosen? When would they have decided Las Vegas is where we're going to end this thing? Uh, I suspect it would have been decided uh, back in the spring or in the summer. I, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how they fixed debates in the United States, but the consortium must have got together and, and figured and picked that date. But yeah, it does seem it does seem a bit odd. Uh, but I mean, this whole election, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a crazier American election than this past one. Uh, the sorts of things that people have said and uh, no one's blinked an eye, it's hard to believe. Do you think this is a sign of the times? Do you think this is what it's going to look like in the future? Or do you think this is an anomaly? <laughs> It's really hard to say. I mean, in many ways, we consume uh, politics now like we consume reality television. And so uh, just like you can watch people sitting in a hot tub say all kinds of awful things on, you know, these dating shows, uh, (laughs) it seems like the public is now willing to have their politicians, uh, you know, act in the same manner. And uh, the sort of elitist aspect of politics where we somehow expected our politicians to be a bit more reserved or to represent the better side of us, 
I don't know, maybe we've shed the idea that we should ever be that way. We're just the kind of awful uh, backstabbers and uh, trash talkers that uh, we seem to see on television. Do you think, uh, will, will the atmosphere change this debate in any way? The other one, uh, the second one was more of a town hall type of thing. Uh, the first one more of a straight on split screen type of, of debate. Do you think this will change things in any way? Well, I mean, a town hall gives a different dynamic than the kind of uh, debate that we'll have today because it's the people asking questions and the politicians are in a mode where they have to try and be convincing with the individual voter. I think this is a bit more of a classic debate where it's uh, a matter of trying uh, to show one's competence and command of material and, and the ability to, to fend off questions about one's uh, proposal. So I think we'll see something a lot more similar to the first uh, first debate. Uh, considering uh, Trump has the, the shackles off, as he puts it, is this one going even deeper into the ditch? Uh, yeah, I, I didn't know he had the shackles on at any point in this electoral cycle. I mean, there was hmm. about uh, six weeks where he kind of stuck to script to the summer, but beyond that, uh, uh, I mean, as I say, I mean, it's... Uh, really boggles the mind that uh, politicians, uh, uh, I mean, it, it reminds me of the movie Bullworth in some way, uh, <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, a politician is able to speak completely off the script, and uh, while it seems to have been a bit damaging to Donald Trump, it's much less so than you might have imagined. How uh, serious are the allegations of a rigged election? I mean, for, for months he's been saying the media's against him, he's saying that the other party's against him, now he's saying his own party's against him, uh, but now he's actually coming out and saying that the, elec- the election system is rigged. How damaging is that? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's damaging to uh, people's faith in the electoral system. Uh, I mean, is it at all accurate? I mean, in the United States, it's actually probably one of the hardest countries to make that argument because their elections are so uh, are so decentralized. I mean, that was part of the issue of Bush and Gore and uh, the hanging chads in, in Florida, is that the states each run their own separate election. Uh, and as such, you know, to find a way to actually rig it, you'd have to be rigging 50 different elections. It becomes a bit hard to uh, imagine a capacity to do that. I mean, beyond the fact that, uh, you know, these electoral authorities do have uh, sources of independent expertise, so how they could all be taken over by uh, the Democratic Party or some sort of elite, uh, you know, it's, it really boggles the imagination that that could be taken seriously. Will he still going, keep going down that route tonight, down that road tonight, do you think? Yeah, I suspect so. I mean, you know, uh, psychologically, he seems like someone who can't accept losing uh, and certainly can't take responsibility for that. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's hard to see him if he feels like he's losing, not trying to find some kind of excuse for why it wasn't him, uh, it was some other cause. Uh, you bring up a valid point, and, and I talked about this earlier on in the week, that, um, you know, the sign of a good leader is he's not always blaming everybody else for the downfalls or the mistakes that are made. Does that resonate with people at all? Uh, I think it. I think people can see when uh, people seem to be lashing out at others. You know, I mean, obviously, some people are going to be like, "Yeah, Donald Trump is absolutely right." You know, there's this vast conspiracy against him. But I think a lot of other people say, "Wow, that's looking pretty small." I mean, you know, any leader in a in a campaign which doesn't seem to be doing that well has to wake up every day and go out and pretend that he's going to win. Uh, and I mean, that's a tough job to, to deal with that, especially when the questions get meaner and meaner as the election comes to the end. I mean, if we look at Canada last year, the last week for Tom Mulcair must have been terrible <laughs> in the sense that yeah. he was in the lead and, uh, you know, he had to pretend that he was actually going to do something when he clearly wasn't. Uh, and so, I mean, looking at how leaders deal with imminent defeat and unavoidable defeat, I think, says a lot about their character. I mean, it's hard for people to be at their best in that situation, but, yeah, do they lash out at people? Do they... 
uh, take uh, swipes at people who are actually there working for them, you know, nonstop for years, or they show a certain kind of graciousness uh, in accepting defeat uh, and trying to find some way to, to maintain a degree of, uh, of decency and uh, humility. You know, it might be kind of interesting if they lifted up the curtain tonight and they were both in hot tubs. Yeah, I didn't need that mental image. <laughs> uh, there was a, a, a headline in the press this week that uh, Trump was a threat to democracy. Uh, do you feel that way? What are your thoughts on that line? Uh, I mean, I think when we have uh, candidates for office who, you know, while still running and, you know, giving the legitimacy to the election should they win, uh, say if they lose, somehow it's rigged against them. I mean, I think it is, it's a dangerous moment because it encourages... Uh, people to see these elections as not fair and as things that should be contested by you know non-democratic means. So, I mean, for to make those kinds of claims, they're really serious claims because if they aren't true, uh, they nevertheless begin to undermine confidence in the political system. I mean, it is really pushing uh, the supporters to say, well, maybe you need a revolutionary change if ultimately the you know the democratic system uh, is filled with these kinds of abuses. Uh, you know, that's the sort of nature in which you could say a, a, a revolution would be justified. Uh, and uh, I mean, that's going pretty far uh, when we observe, say, the American system, where it doesn't seem to me that uh, those kinds of claims could be justified. Will we see a new breed of politician at the other end of this circus? Will the pendulum swing all the way back the other way? I mean, I think in the short term, what we have to be more concerned of is that we'll see a new breed of politician which follows or tries to follow on the uh, the Trump wagon. That's my next question, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's the more likely thing, that it's really? been paying off for him. And so people will say, maybe we can push these hot buttons. Uh, you know, maybe there have been, uh, you know, elites, uh, political elites have decided not to talk about some things because they feel it's for the good of the political community. Uh, but that you can blow them up because you can get support out of them. And so, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised that if we see some more uh, open use of uh, kind of different forms of racial stereotyping and so on by political leaders to uh, try and move votes. So, I mean, I think we'll, we'll see attempts at it. But, I mean, Donald Trump's a very particular figure. Uh, I mean, he has a certain kind of charisma. Uh, he's developed a certain kind of image of himself that uh, you can't just take off the shelf. I mean, some people sometimes talk about Doug Ford. You know, is Doug Ford Donald Trump? No, he, d- he doesn't have that charisma. He doesn't have the same kind of mm. ideology of being the winner, you know, the big-time winner that has been useful in, in having people being willing to follow him. Uh, I mean, there's important ways in which, uh, you know, Trump has really changed what the Republican Party stands for around things like trade, uh, number of different uh, you know points of policy and yet uh, the people have followed him uh, and in fact have come to probably take points of view that they would have opposed before he came along mm-hmm. in terms of thinking about uh, you know the appropriate moral actions of you know men in marriages and things like that or uh, treatment of women uh, sexual assault where they would have been very moralistic against people but because they've decided that Trump's a winner uh, these sorts of news doesn't like push them away from Trump, but forces them to actually reconfigure their own value system. So the f- the f- Trump can do that. I'm not sure that Kelly Leach or Doug Ford would have that same kind of capacity. The fact that both uh, parties uh, have issues with Donald Trump, does that make him more attractive to that core? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it does play... Uh, Anti-establishment? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I think, a long-standing sense that politics is rigged against a little guy. Uh, and so you do have one of the appeals of someone like Trump, and uh, I mean we've seen it 
uh, with Berlusconi in Italy and other places is that they can say, yeah, I, I have the wealth that I'm not beholden to these party elites, and so I'm going to do what's right. And so that plays well, I think, with people who think that the existing parties are somehow uh, rigging the deck and not listening to the little guy. So, I mean, I think that's part of his appeal. I think he's also a kind of classical uh, authoritarian figure that uh, appeals to other groups. And if you're a real loyal Republican, you're going to vote for him because, uh, like him or hate him, he's you know on your team. So, and I think that's a base. You know, there's a bunch of different bases to Trump support, but yeah, one of them is being is kind of anti-politics. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, one of the few not to get pulled into this debate, and has stayed very diplomatic about it all, and and said that he'll work with anybody uh, that uh, the U.S. elects. Uh, interesting that he's taken that position and others aren't. Uh, yeah, although I mean, I think if you're a Canadian prime minister, you know that uh, you are really deeply tied to whoever the Americans elect. Uh, so I mean, I think that's part of the picture. Uh, I think part of it too is uh, you know he realizes that when you get involved in uh, the politics of other countries, uh, you're making enemies as well as friends, mm-hmm. uh, and you're seen as putting your nose where it doesn't really belong. So. In that sense, I think Trudeau, uh, you know, is, is taking a wise course. It's probably based too a bit on his understanding that he'd really much rather work with Clinton than with Trump. But to the extent that Clinton looks to be leading at the moment, uh, uh, he can afford to be very neutral and not have to signal anything else. Of course, I guess the final thing is, uh, you know, how many votes does Justin Trudeau move in the United States? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, probably many fewer. Uh, than uh, John Oliver or John Stewart uh, hmm. or any one of these, you know, comedians uh, on television. And what are they going to do after November? Well, I guess that depends on the outcome. All right, let's talk about Justin Trudeau's first year. How long will the honeymoon uh, go on? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, uh, it seems that there continues to be a strong support in polls for the Trudeau government. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact at this stage that there's not a firm uh, opposition leader that the media can focus on and begin mm. to develop a line. So I suspect with the selection of a conservative leader in the new year and then a new NDP leader in about a year's time from now, uh, the ground will be set for a real testing of the government because uh, clearly he's been making decisions this fall that have started to displease uh, constituencies, but they don't necessarily have a place to rally to. So, you know, whether it's him walking back his promise of electoral reform, whether it's on the question of building uh, this uh, gas plant in uh, British Columbia, whether it's the idea of pushing for a new pipeline, uh, whether it's not really making any progress on the health record because he's not willing to put money into it, uh, these are things that. Uh, should have electoral costs for the Liberal Party, but uh, require someone to point it out. Uh, if, if, you know, even, for example, with the, the way he handled the Trump situation, he seems to be able to ride the fence between su- two sides quite diplomatically and make both sides feel like they're a part of the discussion. Well, I mean, I think that's part of the Liberal uh, strategy with Trudeau. I mean, I think they're going to try and really distance Trudeau from uh, the decisions of the government. Uh, and they'll try and make it seem like those are separate things. So the government's going to have to... How do you do that? (laughs) Uh, Well, I think you rely on people not paying attention and not knowing how things work, uh, and also uh, just by distancing of images. So you make the ministers uh, stand up in Parliament and look bad, well, maybe not look bad, but say things that, you know, will be not always pleasing to the Liberal Party supporters. And you have Trudeau out uh, hugging newcomers at airports and marching in pride parades and trying to look beautiful. Uh, and uh, you sell it that way, that uh, there's a base of support, I think, supporting the Liberals who support the Liberals because they think they're doing the right thing. 
uh, but aren't necessarily that affected by, you know, particularly policy decisions. So as long as Trudeau continues looking like the right thing, uh, they can live with the fact that the policy outcomes don't look that different from Harper when all is said and done. Uh, and that may be electoral, uh, electorally uh, saleable for them. I mean, it's the idea of the Teflon president that you sometimes see in the United States, where uh, you develop a public persona of a president and uh, uh, specific disappointments around particular policies uh, just seem to get deflected off that because you haven't made that central to how that person's branded. Is that what it is? Is he's just doing what Harper was doing, but he's doing it with a much more, uh, with a smile on his face and a, more of a warm, fuzzy feeling and a more inclusive feeling? Yeah, on many topics. I mean, on some, there's been a bit of a movement, uh, you know, and assisted dying, for instance, they brought in a bill rather than trying to stymie it. Uh, he's not trying to fiddle around with the Supreme Court nomination process and, uh, you know, his, his deal with the Senate and so on seems a bit more straightforward. So, I mean, there there have been changes, but on Im- important questions like the emphasis on sort of natural resource-led development, uh, of not really changing what we invest in health uh, care, uh, promise around the electoral system, a number of things. We, we see a fair bit of uh, continuity with the Harper regime. But, yeah, I mean, I guess there's two things. I mean, one, there's uh, the whole branding exercise, uh, which maybe uh, confuses people for a while. And, uh, you know, the second uh, is that there are some small differences that can be uh, put forward. Uh, but I think, uh, yeah, the, the third thing is to maybe do it with a different style. And that's maybe where the liberals have been most clear is that they've been doing a lot of consultation. Mm. Uh, so they, you know, they recognize that people may disagree with them, but that the disagreement will be muted if they've been brought into the tent first and people feel they've been listened to. Uh, that works for a while, uh, but if there's not really any kind of more substantive change in a couple of years, I suspect people won't see that consultation in as favorable a light. Uh, you talked about the, how, the lack of opposition at this uh, point. Obviously, both parties looking for new leadership and such. NDP, of course, um, no one can seem to understand why they're taking so long and going the route that they are taking or that they have decided to take, uh, especially when Thomas Mulcair gets up. I mean, he, he still is an active uh, opposition critic, that's for sure, or critic of uh, of the Trudeau government, rather. Uh, what about Ronna Ambrose, though? I mean, again, because she's not permanent, um, it lacks a little there? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the media does really try to personify our politics, and so uh, they are really looking for who's the person who's going to lead that storyline into that next election. And it's not going to be Tom Mulcair, and it's not going to be Rona Ambrose. So I think that's why uh, they don't get the same attention. There's not the same kind of excitement or energy around their questions, uh, precisely because they don't look like they're going to be there for the long term. And so they can't really be part of that storyline that's leading to the next federal election. Uh, Do you think there's any way that uh, Rona Ambrose will end up running or will end up being a, a leader or the leader? Uh, I think this time around the rules are clear enough that uh, she can't run having yeah. come. Uh, and, I mean, it's, there's been no shortage of people declaring their interest in the job. So, uh, you know, it would be a bit harder to say no one wants a job. Do you want to, or there's only a couple of crazies, you know, do you want it? Uh, let's find a way to change the rules. So, I mean, uh, I think at this stage, uh, uh, in a way, she may uh, use this as an opportunity if she wants to run down the road to say, look, I was able to do a good job. I did well in question period. I held the party together. Uh, even if I couldn't really hold a really heavy hand because, you know, everyone knew I wasn't going to be here forever. Uh, so, I mean, she can use it in that way. Uh, I mean, if she can look down the road and say, if this new conservative leader can't beat Trudeau next time, 
uh, chances yeah. are they'll be thrown overboard, and you know I may have my chance in five years. Uh, it seems that's what everyone's waiting for. Uh, a recent poll of the federal uh, progressive conservative candidates, 56% picked other somebody other than the many that were running. Do you think that would change if Rana's name was on the ballot? Uh, it might go down to like 50. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I, I get the sense that her work has been uh, respected. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, she's not being judged in terms of one of the people who's in that field. I mean, it's more is she doing a good job as a leader in Parliament, not necessarily as a leader that would set the direction for the party and ensure that, you know, the party organization was renewed and restructured in a manner that would make them competitive uh, in another three years' time. So I think it's there probably that it's hard to judge uh, someone who stands in as a, an interim leader. I mean, similarly, Bob Ray did very well for the uh, Liberals uh, in advance of Trudeau's election. Hmm, good point. Uh, but I suspect he wouldn't have been that uh, important a choice among Liberal candidates if they actually were choosing a leader straight up. Peter Grant has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, Trudeau, one year in. Peter, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, tonight, gather around the TVs is almost as good as a Blue Jays game. Uh, Set up the TV trays. It's time for another U.S. presidential debate, Uh, this time in Las Vegas. And I don't know. I just put my head in my hands when I hear that. Uh, It's as, as if this circus hasn't gotten wild enough. Why are we having debates in a city like Las Vegas? I don't know. Shouldn't we be having these debates in some university somewhere where it's quiet and out of the way and not really, well, Vegas? I don't know. I'm just, the optics here are just absolutely bizarre and getting more more bizarre by the minute. To talk about the final installment of the U.S. presidential debates, uh, Blaine Haggard is with us, associate professor in the Department of Political Science, Brock University. He is with us now. Hello, Blaine. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Blaine, do you find it odd that this is being held in Las Vegas? Am I the only one looking at it this way? Um, well, when you put it, I hadn't thought about it, but when you put it that way, it is kind of fitting that in, that in everything that's happened in this election season that it would happen. I do know that uh, at least one school or one university actually turned down the chance to have a debate because security costs would have been too high. So maybe that's why, but... Uh, but certainly, the uh, it certainly got a nice little symbolic setting, doesn't it? Well, it just you know, uh, it just fits this year, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Leave it at that. All right. Um, uh, Trump has been saying an awful lot of things over the course of this campaign. Uh, most of it surprises all of it, uh, all of us. But I guess at this point, we really shouldn't be surprised. Uh, last week, talking about Hillary being on drugs. Of course, both parties are out to get him. The media's out to get him. Everything's rigged. Uh, but now, of course, he's talking about the election system being rigged. Here's what he had to say about that. Remember. We're competing in a rigged election. This is a rigged election, folks, okay? The media is an extension of the Clinton campaign, as WikiLeaks has proven. And they don't talk about WikiLeaks. They just keep talking about Trump, Trump, Trump. They want to put nice, sexy headlines up, even though nothing happened, nothing took place, even though it's a total fabrication. They even want to try to rig the election at the polling booths. And believe me, there's a lot going on. Do you ever hear these people? They say, there's nothing going on. People that have died 10 years ago are still voting. Illegal immigrants are voting. I mean, where are the street smarts of some of these politicians? Wow. Uh, What are your thoughts on some of those comments, Blaine? Uh, Well, 
I mean, factually, pretty much everything that he said in there was a lie. I mean, it's uh, electoral fraud in the United States is close to non-existent. It is literally impossible to rig a federal election because the elections are controlled by the states, many of the states being run by the Republicans, and, you know, none of them being run by one central authority. So it, it's just, it's it's absolute nonsense. But, I mean, that's kind of what we've come to expect from Donald Trump by now. Uh, isn't it a sign of a weak leader who always blames someone else? I mean, even uh, Barack Obama spoke up on this the other day and said, you know, enough of the whining. Just get out and get people to vote for you. I mean, really, isn't that what it's come down to here? Well, I, I mean, you know, it has, you know, the 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 entire campaign has driven pretty much everybody completely over the bend. But one of the good things about having such a long campaign is that we're able to really, you know, get to the heart of what people's temperament is like. And for a job like president of the United States, that's really, really important. And so with Trump, what we've seen essentially is that he, he's basically a flim flam artist. He's, he's a, he's a reality TV show uh, businessman. Uh, and on the other side, you know, basically you have Hillary Clinton, who's basically being Hillary Clinton. So in that sense, you know, it, it is. It's, it, it, yeah, of course, he's, he's a weak leader. He'd be a terrible president. Uh, talk about the format for tonight's uh, debate in Las Vegas and uh, what you think we can expect to see. Um, <laughs> uh, it'll uh, Basically, I think well, it's my understanding, Chris Wallace, who's the moderator, his, his thing is, is he likes to... Uh, he likes to stay out of the way and let kind of and let the uh, and let the debaters or let the candidates uh, do their thing. So he said he's not so much in favor of, of fact checking. That said, he has uh, in the previous debate during the Republican primary, he he got a little bit of uh, notoriety or you know 15 minutes of fame for for fact fact checking Donald Trump. So we'll see what happens there. But you know, in contrast, we'll be back pretty much to the same format as the first one. So it's not going to be a town hall. And essentially what you're going to have is uh, Hillary Clinton being very, very prepared, having studied for this, and Donald Trump, who has shown he's really not interested in, in studying it. So it'll be, uh, you know, pretty much more of the same, I think. Uh, the, the, this moderator from Fox, will that change the dynamic in any way? I mean, uh, more an ally of Trump? Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what counts as an ally of Trump right now. Uh, but it, it, more to the point is that he's not... Like, I don't know if you remember from the second debate where Anderson Cooper came in and, and you know, was, was very, very hard on Donald Trump on a few points. Mm-hmm. I think we'll probably see less of that. But at the end of the day, you're going to be in a situation where they're going to be talking about facts, they're going to be talking about issues, and they're going to be talking about temperament. And Donald Trump doesn't do well on those at all, and Hillary Clinton does quite well. Uh, no shortage of bad things leaking out in regard to Hillary and and emails and such. What does Donald have to do to focus on this? Is she getting a free ride on all this stuff? I don't. He, well, as we heard in the clip there about with the WikiLeaks, you know, he claims that uh, that she is, but in fact, you know, all these stories about the WikiLeaks and the leaked emails have been showing up on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And part of it is is there, there just is not a heck of a lot there. Um, it really hasn't, nothing in the emails, at least that I've seen or that I've read about, has really told us anything new about, about Hillary Clinton. I mean, we've known that she's, she's a very pragmatic politician who tries to triangulate, who tries to, uh, who's, who's comfortable dealing with business. So there's nothing really, really new there. And other stuff is just kind of, you know, kind of like the, 
the you know the, the bad language and stuff you get whenever you have people who think that they're having a private email conversation. Uh, as you heard with Trump in that clip, he he's blaming everybody for for his downfall at this point, and that nobody is picking up on the information that that that, that he is putting forth in regard to Hillary. Why doesn't he spend more time on that then? Uh, why can't he himself move his campaign forward? And again, I, I, I don't want to keep going back to what President Barack Obama said, but, you know, it's like, stop whining and tell us what you're going to do for us. And, and we just haven't heard that. I, I think there's two things going on. First of all, is that Donald Trump is, is kind of lazy. He hasn't, you know, when given the chance, I mean, even Sarah Palin tried to bone up for her speeches, for, her, uh, for the debates that she had. In, uh, in 2008, uh, Donald Trump hasn't done any of that. And secondly, he doesn't, have a, he doesn't really have a, a big campaign apparatus to do a lot of this kind of stuff. It's basically him and his rallies, and there's, you know, they don't have anybody on the ground um, in any of these states really to kind of get out the vote, and they don't have really much of an infrastructure beyond the Trump family. So he's not inclined to do the work, and he doesn't have an organization that's uh, willing to do the work or able to do the work. Uh, obviously, this is, you know, the opportunity that has been afforded to Donald Trump here is one that only comes to the rich and famous. If you were a supporter of his, at what point do you get angry that he's blown the opportunity? I mean, he's had an opportunity that, that, that very few ever get, and he's really wasted it for exactly like you just said, lack of preparedness. Um, if I'm a Donald Trump supporter at this point, I think that I'm going to, I would still vote for him because, I mean... The other thing about like all these revelations from you know the, from the, the tapes from 2005 and everything else, it's just kind of confirming what we've been seeing all along. So if any one of those things isn't enough to convince people to jump off the Trump bandwagon, you know he's going to have his core of support. You know, 37 percent of people who are going to vote for him, whether it's for him or out of kind of you know loyalty to the Republican Party. So I don't think there's anything really that can happen that could really you know get him down below a certain level. So does he have an opportunity uh, during this debate tonight with the information that has come out regarding Hillary this week? Oh, sure. He can try to do something with it. Um, And then, of course, it's up to Hillary Clinton to respond because, you know, she'll have to do that. And that's the other thing, too, is that everything has been so much Trump and Trump has been so kind of wild and extreme that we forget almost that there's another person in the in the race. And so it'll be up to Clinton to actually make a case for herself about, you know, why we should, or I guess in her case, why we shouldn't care about what's in the emails and what the emails say about her and her campaign. Could one of the other candidates for the Republican Party have beat Hillary Clinton, do you think? Um, I mean, I don't know. The one thing that I do find amazing is, and one thing that's gotten lost, is that, that Clinton has, has run one of the most kind of disciplined campaigns that I can remember in my lifetime. I, I think back, for instance, like in 2000, Al Gore's running. You know, he he, he uh, famously didn't uh, campaign with Bill Clinton because he didn't want to be associated with him. And, you know, that possibly ended up costing him the election. With Clinton, she's got basically the entire party behind her. She's got ran a very disciplined uh, um, convention. Um, the president, the vice president, Michelle Obama, um, Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, everyone's coming out to support her, and the Democratic Party is doing exactly what it needs to do in order to win. And that all comes from the top. That comes from the candidate who basically says, this is the campaign I'm going to run. So I think that actually speaks quite well of, uh, of Clinton and her campaign. So, Will, uh, do you think tonight, do you think we'll hear 
Trump say or complain that the election is rigged? And if you're his opponent, how do you how do you address that? Because it's not like it's 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 leveled at you. I mean, it's the system. How, how does anybody respond or will he even bring this up, do you think? Um, it's possible that he could bring it up. Uh, I mean, he seems to be bringing up pretty much everything else, including, as I understand it, bringing Barack Obama's half-brother to the debate for some reason. Um, but for Clinton, it'll basically be just a matter of continuing to do what she's been doing. I mean, saying, you know, that when you say that, it's not true. And, you know, maybe steal a line from uh, Barack Obama saying, you know, stop whining and, uh, and get back to work. How uh, do you think we will see uh, the stalking going on stage that we saw during the last debate? Do you think someone will say, you know what, you've got to stand close? Will Hillary react to that or will the moderator react if 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 Trump's trying to be too distracting while Hillary's speaking? I'm not sure. I, I don't think that they're going to be allowed to roam the stage. I could be wrong, but I don't think they're going to be uh, roaming the stage freely like they do in a town hall debate. So they'll probably be behind a podium or seated or something like that. But uh, so so he no, he probably won't get a chance to menace Clinton in that quite that way. Surprised we haven't heard more from his family of late. They were quite prominent, especially after uh, the primaries and such. Are you surprised that they haven't weighed into more of this? Um, um, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, every time someone weighs in for, for Donald Trump, it just seems to end kind of weirdly, like Rudolph Giuliani. Um, so I don't know. There really isn't. That said, there isn't really anyone else who is um, who's kind of trusted as a surrogate for Donald Trump. And when I'm saying that he doesn't really have an organization, the only organization he really has is his family. It's not really a party thing at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, will Hill, uh, Hillary bring up the fact that his party is deserting him? Um, if she thinks that it's a, if she thinks that it's important, or if it might get under his skin a little bit, because some of the things that she likes to do is kind of, you know, lay some traps for Donald Trump to get him to kind of respond. If you'll remember the uh, the Miss Universe uh, uh, thing, where Donald Trump, you know, basically complete, you know, kind of decided the election with his, you know, 3 a.m. Twitter meltdown, and that came from something that Hillary Clinton had mm. planted in the debate. So she'll probably spend it part of the debate making herself, you know, putting forward her case, but also kind of laying. Um, traps for for Donald Trump to respond to because he's got the thinnest skin of pretty much anyone I've ever seen in, in American politics. Do you, who will fling mud first, or do you think they'll ease into it? I mean, last or the other debate, they seem to get into it quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, Donald Trump. Uh, if I were betting, I'd say Donald Trump because he really doesn't have anything else to play. He doesn't understand. He doesn't. He doesn't understand, or he hasn't tried to understand policy. So after that, it's what, all the only thing that's left is personal attacks. Uh, audience still as large. Will the audience is the audience still as interested in this as we were the first? Um, I don't know. Certainly, uh, people will be tuned in to see what Donald Trump does. So there will probably be a sizable audience. Whether it's as big as the first two, I don't know. Uh, so from this point out, you just see more of the same. You don't see too much difference, too much changes. Do you think we'll be surprised in any way after this debate? Well, typically, um, I was just reading some uh, an analysis of the polling this morning, and typically, at this point in the election, we've already had people starting to vote, um, and there's only a few weeks left to go to the election. Thank goodness. And so, a lot of people, most people have already made up their mind. So, it tends to be like what at this point the poll numbers are pretty much set, and we can start to figure out who's going to win the election. So, it's still possible for Donald Trump to win, but it would take 
a miracle of unprecedented or events of unprecedented uh, happenings to actually uh, occur. Uh, any surprises on the guest list tonight? Uh, remember last time uh, Donald Trump's campaign uh, or uh, brought some uh, guests in here to get into the feathers of the Clintons. What do you, are we going to see that again? Well, he did say that Barack Obama's half-brother would be coming, so that's kind of weird. What is I the think. significance of that? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I read someone joking on Twitter saying that, that it's, that you know he's looking to have a chance to to boss someone named Obama around, but hmm. I I have no idea. It's he, he's obviously trying to play some kind of mind games, but I can't understand why that would you know throw anybody off their game, let alone Hillary Clinton, considering Barack Obama is not running for president again. Um, Donald Trump, after the last uh, debate, wanted a drug test done on Hillary. He thought she was on something during the last debate. Will that come up again? Oh, I, I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I don't think anybody predicted that Donald Trump would have said that. So I think that we don't know if he'll bring up certain accusations. Chances are he'll bring up some kind of odd accusations, and people will say, well, that was kind of weird. So at the end of the day, the base will be impressed, but uh, you think the trend will continue? I think so. I mean, and that's the problem. You know, the bigger picture looking forward to the, you know, post the election is that the Republicans are going to have to decide to do what to do with Donald Trump and what to do with his base because he obviously, like the people who like Donald Trump, like him a lot, but there are not nearly enough of them to win a presidential election. So if the Republicans want to be, uh, if they want to be competitive, they're caught between having to please his base and everybody else, which is the majority. And you can't, like I said, you can't win if you don't uh, if you don't try to reach out to other people and Trump. And, and that ilk in Trumpism isn't capable of reaching other people. Will we see more defections from the Republican Party the closer we get to the election? I mean, it seemed last week everybody had pretty much washed their hands of Donald Trump. Will we see more of this uh, as we get closer? It's going to come down to whether or not people or Republican candidates believe that, uh, that, that they can either win or lose without, uh, with or without Donald Trump. Uh, if they think that they can win without him, then or without his supporters, then they'll probably wash. You'll see more people washing their hands of them. Um, if not, then uh, they'll just they'll kind of ride this ship right to the end. How does the Republican Party rebrand itself post Donald Trump? Um, I don't know, but they will have to deal with that. If, right now, you've got essentially you've got essentially what is kind of essentially a white nationalist or, or white supremacist party. Which is the uh, the what Trump appeals to, and then you've got kind of like the small C, you know, business conservatives, um, and they're going to. It's going to be. Uh, I don't know how you pull that together, but it's that it's going to be tough. And uh, yeah, I have no clue. Blaine Haggard has been with us, associate professor at the Department of Political Science, Brock University. Tonight, of course, the final debate for Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in the U.S. presidential campaign. Uh, 9 o'clock, we will stream it live at 900CHML.com. You know what? It even amazes me, Blaine, that Canadians are even, Canadian media is even making this available. I mean, when was the last time you heard anybody say, are you going to watch the debate tonight? Uh, I, I imagine quite a few people are doing that. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it is kind of compelling TV, and it's also incredibly, incredibly important, and I think people realize that. Blaine Haggard, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science, Brock University. Thank you, Blaine. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.